You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 233, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. This edition of the podcast features an interview with Mark Masters, author of High Bias, The Distorted History of the Cassette Tape. The cassette has a long, storied, and complex history. And in High Bias, Masters takes readers through some of its most notable moments. From the birth of magnetized sound to the proliferation of the game-changing Sony Walkman and much of what happened in between and after, Masters dives into key technological advancements, tape subcultures, mixtapes, tape traders, and more. During the interview, Mark and I spoke at length about some of the book's highlights, including the massive popularity of the cassette in Eastern cultures and Africa, and the format's recent resurgence in underground circles. Mark also picked some awesome records from Times New Viking, Silver Jews, and more. This episode also features music from the cassette accompaniment to High Bias, which is titled High Bias, Music from the Book. You can get the book and the cassette at highbiasbook.bandcamp.com. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look Up My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look Up My Records website, where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, details on upcoming events, and much more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. All right, I'm here with Mark Masters, author of the new-ish book, High Bias, The Distorted History of the Cassette Tape. It's an excellent book, everyone. You can get a copy via Mark's Bandcamp, highbiasbook.bandcamp.com. Also available where books are sold as well. Mark, how are you? Thanks for taking the time to speak with me about your great new book. Oh, I'm, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really psyched to talk to you about it. Uh, me too. So to start out, this is a, you know, excellent, well-researched book, y- you know, kind of looking out there, there are other books on the cassette tape. And I really feel like this, though, kind of has its own voice, has its own like niche and kind of viewpoint that it's exploring. So what was your the impetus for you to write this book? When did the process start? Kind of what void were you looking to to fill out there with this book? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of a, a funny origin story. I mean, not not that weird per se, but just a little different than usual. I I I wanted I had the idea for a while. I I put together a proposal based on somebody asking me about it at one point and it ne- that never went anywhere, and then <clears throat> through in a sort of a testament to the the scene of tape tapes and cassettes and labels and stuff, a label that I used to write about a lot called uh, Geographic North. I still do like write about them from time to time. Uh, they're in Atlanta, 
the guy who runs at Bobby Power happened to be uh, college friends with a guy at University of North Carolina Press who had mentioned to him, we would love to publish a book about cassettes. Do you know anybody who might be able to? <laughs> and I already had sort of a somewhat worked out proposal anyway. So Bobby recommended me. And then so I pitched, I, I worked on the proposal a little more and pitched it to them and they went for it. And, uh, you know, in terms of the, the inspiration to actually do it, you know, I've been a cassette fan for since I grew up in the 80s using them. And uh, I always had some sort of a little bit of nostalgia for that time, but also a kind of a, a feeling that, you know, we, we're missing something by not having them as prominent as we used to. And then the fact that they have had somewhat of a comeback, nothing huge, but a decent comeback in the past decade or so. I just thought it'd be interesting to sort of uh, chart where they started, how they got to where they are now, and why they're still kind of valuable, uh, both for people who don't know that they're still being used. I think that's interesting to them. And for the younger people who are into them now to get a sense of like how important they were before they were born. Yeah. And this is the second book you've written. You wrote a great book on No Wave mm -hmm. that I unfortunately haven't read because it's out of print. Highly sought after book, yeah. though. Uh, I've seen it on yeah. eBay <laughs> going for a lot of money and stuff like that. So that's cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> having gone through that, writing a book on a very specific scene where I felt like it was probably mm -hmm. more focused as far as your research and interviews go, mm -hmm. whereas this is your second book, it's the cassette tape is really, you know, much broader and far reaching subject. How would you compare writing yeah. this book to writing your first book? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point you're making. I mean, luckily with No Wave, I could give myself really distinct parameters, not just in terms of who I covered, but the time period and the discography. I mean, luckily of all the sort of mini genres that ever happened in rock, it was one of the ones where people hardly put out any records <laughs> and stuff. So I could cover almost all of it yeah. <laughs> without without having to make a gigantic book. And yeah, the cassette, at first it was a little uh, daunting yeah. to think, how am I going to cover everything about cassettes? But the nice thing about it is because there are so many different aspects of cassettes to talk about, I knew I couldn't go into super depth into any of them. I mean, I think some of them I went into yeah. decent depth with, but I didn't I didn't feel like I had to just know everything about everything that I wrote about. I needed to just get enough that I could give people a sense of how this, these things happened and, you know, when they happened, where they happened. And, you know, there was it was tempting, like with the hip hop section, I yeah. could have you know, there, there are whole books about hip hop cassettes and, and I certainly could have kept going and going with that one. And I would have loved to, but luckily a book like this, you, you get a pretty quick feel for how soon you have to cut yourself off and move on to the next thing. So that, that part of it made it a little easier. Yeah. The hip hop section was cool. I didn't know, you know, I knew that the cassette played a prominent role in early hip hop in New York city, but I didn't know about mm -hmm. the car services that, uh, I think <laughs> yeah. had, you know, like prided themselves on having the latest tapes from the latest DJs and stuff like that. So that was a really mm -hmm. cool tidbit mm -hmm. in the book uh, that I enjoyed. Yeah. And of course, uh, there was a, a part on the the late great DJ Screw from Houston, who is uh, mm -hmm. awesome as well. And just to kind of transition to the next question, I really like the way the book flowed. Uh, the, the way it's separated into chapters, I think is great. It really starts with the history. There's about a, a good 30 page chunk that goes into the history of the cassette tape. And that kind of goes into mm -hmm. artists that use the cassette to kind of, you know, get their music out there, hip hop DJs, things like that. Um, then it goes into a chapter about how, uh, artists, I guess, use cassette desk 
decks and cassettes as instruments. Then, of course, live tape trading culture, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, the popularity of cassettes in non-Western cultures. And then finally, kind of the resurgence. But then after you know, reading it, I was like, not so much a resurgence as the cassette has kind of just evolved and in how people use yep. it. It's always been there. But so I mm -hmm. guess all that is to say, how'd you decide to split the book up in that manner? And was that kind of the original mm -hmm. way you wanted to go about it? When did the idea, I guess, for outlining how you wanted to divide up this mm -hmm. really broad topic uh, came about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the part of that was in my original proposal. I did have some of those seg th uh, different segments and chapters kind of planned out. I mean, it, it changed a lot. Like at one point, I thought I was going to have a full-on chapter about about artwork on cassettes, both both on pre-recorded cassettes and like mixtape cassettes and stuff. And then I realized it just wasn't holding up as a full thing. And it was easy to, easier to sort of sprinkle it through other people's stories, like the mixtape chapter has stuff about that. The modern label yeah. things has stuff about that. So yeah, so things things would change as I as I went along, but um. Ultimately, even though I sort of had an outline to begin with, I decided I, I'm just going to all these things I think are, are going to be worth writing about. I'm going to research and write them first and then sort of see how they fall into places and things like that. Like I, at one point, I thought maybe I'll have a chapter on these people who use cassettes and decks as part of their art yeah. as instruments. But that over, overlaps so much with the rest of the cassette underground and all the sort of experimental artists who use cassettes in the 80s and 90s and before and after. So it seemed easier and made more sense to fold into that whole those those all together into one. And uh, luckily, a lot of the um, categorizations and chapters kind of presented themselves to me as I was writing, which was nice. I mean, I, I, I kept expecting at some point this structure is going to fall apart and I'm going to have to do something else with it. But it never it never did. Luckily. <laughs> yeah, that's that is impressive to me because it's got to be hard putting a book together and then kind of figuring out a way to parse all this information and put it into these little mm -hmm. um you know subsections so you know really flowed mm -hmm. really yeah. well and i really liked the way it was structured oh thanks oh thank you i loved the first chapter of the book which really goes kind of through a condensed history of the cassette even though it's condensed mm -hmm. you definitely managed to pack a lot into about 30-ish pages. Um, it was cool mm -hmm. to learn about, you know, the technology that kind of long predated actual cassettes as we know them. I guess mm -hmm. the the, uh, the birth of magnetized sound. And then you also kind of go into mm -hmm. the period just before the boom of cassettes in the 80s. You know, the invention of, I guess, the personal recorder with the microphone and the little tape deck and yeah, stuff right. like that. Uh, in kind of going through that history, researching it, writing that chapter, what do you think was the real critical turning point for the medium that kind of led to that boom? Like, what can you pinpoint that you think really allowed cassettes to flourish as far as the technology? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it was a conflagration of so many things coming together. You know, there had been reel-to-reel -reel decks. There had been those cartridge kind of one one reel loop kind of things, and all different kind of things were progressing. I mean, people were starting to figure out how you could make thinner tape that still would hold up and that would have uh, decent enough audio quality to be usable. And then people were also figuring out 
how to make because a reel to reel one of the big problems was it's just sitting yeah. there open you could easily just like run into yeah. it and then completely ruin your tape so people were starting to understand how to make put a case around it that could still hold enough tape for the speed to be good and all these kind of different factors and so Lou Otten's the guy yeah. who figured out the the compact cassette, the one that we all think of as a cassette tape. He wouldn't necessarily have to have been the guy who, I mean, it, there were so many people working on this and some people looking into it that it could have happened anywhere. I think the, the real big bang part of it, though, in terms of Lou's involvement, wasn't just the fact that he, you know, had it, but was kind of a real clever guy in terms of figuring out how to put these all together into something small that you, it was big for him to carry in your pocket. He made a block of wood that he carried around to try to get used to what exactly what size he wanted to make it and all that kind of stuff. But when he and Phillips decided, he worked for Phillips in the Netherlands, when they decided, because Sony and other Japanese companies came to them immediately when they were showing this thing off and said, we want this. And, and Phillips was like, well, you you got to pay us for it. And they were like, well, we'll make our own. Phillips was like, well, okay, maybe it's better. It makes more sense for us to let everybody use this license for free. As long as they go by our standards and, and do the same thing we're doing, they can have it. And then we're probably in the long run going to make more money that way than if we try to do a proprietary one, <clears throat> a proprietary cassette, and it doesn't catch on. So that was a huge thing. I think at that point, suddenly, with all these different formats everywhere, so, there was one sort of like what happened with VHS and things like that, but was one that everybody decided they were going to use. And that, I mean, it just, it's so crucial that everybody using the same thing makes it <laughs> grow so much faster. You know? I'm curious about what you remember on a personal level about the cassette boom. Uh, you know, it seemed like a really big change in how music was consumed by individuals, how music was marketed, what do you remember, you know, on a personal level in your life about from when, you know, cassettes kind of became the preferred format for a lot of people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was born a little bit after it was uh, Lou invented the the format that we all use. And uh, so I was I kind of grew up right with it already being a relatively prominent yeah. thing, um, and especially in terms of like more of the stereos were being sold with them with cassette decks in them and you could get the little shoebox ones that had little condenser mic and record. I would use that to record things off the radio and stuff like that. But um, when I was sort of like adolescent slash teenager, that's when the Walkman got yeah. introduced. And that's the thing I remember as kind of the big, the really boomy part of it, because I mean, really before then there wasn't portable audio except for car stereos, which isn't what we think of as portable audio so much. It's just outside the house, but it's still kind of fixed to a point. But this idea of being able to carry your music around with you just seemed like the craziest thing. It's sort of the same feeling people had when iPods first came out and things like that. You know, just just this concept of being able to have access to something that you never really had, been, had access to before of your own that wasn't getting dictated by the radio playlist or whatever, you know. You know, it's funny because I remember the first time I saw an iPod and how mind-blowing mm -hmm. it was. Is a friend of <laughs> yeah. mine had uh -huh. it on the Staten Island Ferry. I grew up on Staten Island. Mm -hmm. We were taking the ferry into the city. And I guess, uh -huh. I don't know if I had actually known about it before then, but I was like, wow, you have all your mm -hmm. music on one <laughs> yep. thing. I was uh -huh. like, this is fucking insane. You know, so Yo, it's, totally it's funny insane. how that kind of evolved. Um, and I'm sure mm -hmm. seeing, a, you know, the concept of a Walkman at the time kind of mm -hmm. elicited kind of the same response. Yeah, and it's funny too because one of the points I make in the book is like <clears throat> the concept of a of taking one of these portable cassette players, uh, which people were already using for like dictation or reporters and things like that, 
to just add a headphones to it and just bring your music around. It doesn't seem that crazy an idea. <clears throat> but when it first happened, like when Sony first developed it, people were like, no one's going to want this. They're, people want to talk to each other. They don't want to just sit there listening to their music when they're walking around. And of course, they were totally wrong about that. Everybody <laughs> yeah, yeah. wanted that right away. <laughs> I remember that part of the but book. It, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So it's just funny because, like you say, with the iPod, like, my my kids now who can listen to music on their phones, I don't know if they could ever really appreciate how mind blowing the iPod was at first. And I think the same with cassettes. With the Walkman, I don't. It seems so natural and so ingratiated into everything we do that it's hard to really uh, explain how it before it happened. It was like pretty crazy that it could exist. You know. Yeah. The <laughs> third chapter, I, I kind of alluded to this before we started recording, was really illuminating for me because I really learned a lot about artists who use decks and cassettes as an mm -hmm. instrument or art form. Was there anything you learned mm -hmm. from doing research on that and writing that part of that chapter uh, that surprised mm -hmm. you? I felt like I learned so much from that and you know, just didn't know <laughs> any of it. And a lot of it was surprising to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, there definitely tons of surprises in there. I mean, there, there are people having covered a lot of experimental music over my career as a writer. I, I, there were people I knew about somewhat, some people I didn't know about. I, so some of it was stuff that I kind of knew existed, but definitely the, the, like the, the width and breadth of it is just like, especially in the eighties that there were so many people making so many tapes and passing them around to each other. And, you know, a lot of those people have come up with Bandcamp pages now that have their old cassettes on there and there's like thousands of them in their, in their Bandcamp pages and stuff. And yeah, the, just kind of the, the constant activity was sort of really impressive because it's not like, it, I mean, it made recording obviously 10 times easier than if you had to go to a studio, but it still wasn't like super, you, you had to put yeah. effort into recording onto tapes and making, especially the experimental things these people did with, you know, uh, four tracks and, and the artwork and the way they sent it to each other and stuff, it all, all kind of growing out of the underground mail art scene. Yeah. I, I think, I, I guess the surprising thing to me was just how, how many people were doing it and how often they were doing it. It's just such a prolific scene. One in which like, it's so, there's so many people doing it and so much stuff happening that it's almost like its own ecosystem. Like there was no, there almost no way to explain it to somebody outside of it. Yeah. <laughs> and also no way to cover, no way to cover all of it. I mean, I'm still f discovering artists from the time that I didn't know about while I was writing the book. It's you know? totally uh, never ending. It seems it's, it's really wild. Yeah, yeah. The, in mm -hmm. the first, the introduction to the book, you talk about a mixtape called toxic tunes that you received from <laughs> right. a, a hall mate. Mm -hmm. Uh, in uh, in your freshman year of college at the College of William and Mary uh, in Virginia. Right. And that really resonated mm -hmm. with me, too, because I feel like so many people that are music fans, even if it's not necessarily a mixtape, uh, they can mm -hmm. identify a moment in their lives when someone, you know, for me, it was burned a CD or something like that, that really had an impact sure. on them and kind mm -hmm. of set off you know kind of this lifelong obsession uh, with independent music or underground music and stuff mm -hmm. like that uh tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about how that cassette it seems like was obviously a very formative moment for you how did that kind of mm -hmm. result in more music discovery for you and do you still have that cassette Unfortunately, I don't still have that cassette. Yeah, and I asked, I, I got in. I'm still in touch with my friend on Facebook. We're not super close, yeah. but we talk every once in a while. And as I was writing the book, I said, 
do you have you think you might have a copy and he said oh, i'll go look but i got the sense from him that he might not even remember the tape that, yeah. <laughs> that well and he definitely he definitely doesn't have a copy anymore so no i there's no, unfortunately no trace of it i it's all from my yeah. memory at this point but um yeah i mean when i got to college i you know cassettes were already somewhat prominent i i had listened to a lot of pre-recorded tapes when i was in high school and i'd made mixes for other people so it wasn't like the whole concept was new but the concept of some, you know, being able to connect with some people who had access to stuff that I didn't have in my relatively sort of semi-rural town was, was just exciting. I was just like, I, could, I was hoping there would be people who knew about music I didn't know about yeah. in college. And Glenn, my friend, was one of the first ones who I met who was like that. Now, this tape was something, a tape that had, someone give, had given him. I think it had been passed around a lot, so he hadn't made it himself, but... He did. He was familiar with the artists on it. And it was like, you know, the first time I heard Butthole Surfers, uh, I think TS, TSOL was on it, uh, Dead Kennedys and stuff that I mean, I think everybody who's gotten into sort of punk or experimental stuff at one point when you're younger, you're almost sort of scared of it a little bit yeah. or like, you know, there's something like like exciting and both both exciting and frightening about. And these bands, I thought, were like the edge of the edge and like, you know, I mean, is this going to change my brain if I <laughs> hear some of this music? And um, yeah, it really, you know, it, it definitely made me think I want to seek out more stuff like this. It, it, it happened to be my freshman year. I also happened to figure out what the college radio station was doing. And it was like, you know, sort of a live mixtape of, of the same kind of music. So uh, from that tape to the radio station and back and forth, I just pretty much launched me into always wanting to look for anything new that I could find. And the craziest, most obscure stuff, the most stuff, the stuff that would be like, if I played it back in my high school, people would be like, what, what's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about your, how is your relationship with cassettes evolved over time? I know in your background, you've got records there. So you're not mm -hmm. like purely mm -hmm. a cassette guy, no. but you're definitely a huge right. champion of the cassette tape. Um, you know, in the book, mm -hmm. you talk about these different, you know, mixtape mail traders and mixtape sharers and things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, were you mm -hmm. someone that like shared mixtapes via the mail and just basically what's mm -hmm. your relationship with cassettes now and how has it evolved over, you know, since the 1980s, I'd say. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the big relationship I have with it now is basically new bands making pre-recorded cassettes as their way of getting their music out. I mean, I had a column on Bandcamp for a while that was just about new tape releases. And my current column there is about experimental music, much of which is yeah. coming out on tape. So that's, you know, almost everything I have now is stuff that people are either sending to me or I'm buying from them because they've sent me stuff before, or, you know, or, because, or they're bands that I liked before who are realizing tape is the best, cheapest, fastest way to go right now. So that's most Mostly, I, every once in a while, I do have some blank tapes, although they're harder to come by now. And every once in a while, I will record something or make a mix, but that's pretty rare yep. now. When I was growing up, I, I was a decent mixtape maker. I wasn't, you know, I have a whole chapter in the book about people who were really like pen pal <laughs> yeah. mixtape type of people and people who would map out their mixtapes and a lot of significance behind it. That I was really probably more, I often use tapes as ways to get albums from people, you know, like because none of us could afford to buy everything we wanted. So we would come into each other's house and tape the albums that we had and go back and and then figure out how to dub them to other tapes and give them to other people and i think the whole album kind of idea was was a bigger thing for me and here and there a little bit of live stuff too but that didn't really happen until like college or so when i had access to people who could get bootlegs and things like that it's it's yeah. tough now because something that i've noticed is it's hard to get a good deck like a good old deck i feel like they don't really make new mm -hmm. good decks anymore so you have to get solid old deck second hand and then 
getting right. those fixed. It's not many people left uh-huh. that fix them. I did just find a really <laughs> good guy in Milburn, New Jersey, who just fixed my Sony K8990 oh, ES. So shout out to him. Nice. One-stop repairs <laughs> in uh, Milburn, New Jersey. This is a receipt for the cool. service. So, and you know, I've got a couple That's other great. here too. Here too that I need to get serviced as well. But again, mm-hmm. it seems like they're few and far between people that kind of service decks right. these days even though there mm-hmm. are folks like me and you who probably would use them if they were available mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it is kind of ironic thing that the, it, to say the cassettes have made a comeback when you almost can't really play them <laughs> is a little odd i mean i mean i've been lucky in finding a lot of old decks in in goodwills and thrift stores and stuff but like you say it's a crapshoot you never know which ones are going to work and which ones aren't or how long they'll last and um but at least they're cheap, yeah. you know, but still it is, it is hard, you know, they're, yeah, new, the new deck thing, as far as I can tell is pretty rare of anybody making anything new and good, you know, um, but you know, and what that means is it might be well true that a decent amount of people are buying cassettes and not actually playing them. They're downloading the, the band camp code or listening to them on a streaming service and just getting them as a way to support the band or as a way to have something physical. And I, I deal with that in the book a little bit. I mean, some people think of that as a negative, like, well, you must just be into it for the kitsch if you're not actually playing the tape. But I, I think, I think the opposite is true. I think it's like shows that you care about the band and you, and you want to be connected to them. You want them to take, get your money directly rather than 0.001 0.001 cent every time you play it on Spotify or whatever, and you want to have something from them. I mean, you go to a show, you don't want to walk away with a, you know, just a a, a download code or something. It's nice to have something physical. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> we live in a phys- and uh, you kind of talk, you know, that that's something you talked about in the last chapter a lot. And you know, we live in mm-hmm. a physical mm-hmm. world, especially music bands. We do want that physical. Mm-hmm thing to to walk mm-hmm. away with from the artist it's funny i have an example mm-hmm. right here this this uh cassette uh by the band the seams a band from toronto oh, jangly nice. band mm-hmm. uh this cassette mm-hmm. was put out on the label hand-drawn dracula but it was like very out of print and i couldn't find a copy mm-hmm. and i recently found one on discogs that i paid 20 bucks for nice. but was happy to do that because wow. i just wanted the mm-hmm. the copy of it and i do you know, get to play it on this uh, decks that mm-hmm. I have, but there was that real longing mm-hmm. for a physical copy of a Absolutely. record that I really like. Yeah. I feel like it just gets lost mm-hmm. in the universe if you don't really have <laughs> right. the record on mm-hmm. some kind of physical mm-hmm. uh, medium, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Too. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm sort of format agnostic in a way. Like I like yeah. all the formats. I think they all have different strengths. And I think, I even think streaming's okay. Uh, and digital buying digital media is fine with me. Like buying on Bandcamp, I think that's good. I think they all have good and bad things about them, but I, I think that it, it's, it is, there is something you lose with, with the digital eth- ethereal kind of ephemeral aspect of music that you don't, that you get with physical. It's just, there's a little bit more feel like you invested yourself into something when you have a physical copy of something. 100%. You know? um, and, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, we're both big fans of physical medium of music, which is cool. For sure. I, yeah, I liked yeah, yeah. how in the last <laughs> chapter too, you know, you were kind of talking about people that kind of bemoaned the resurgence or the lasting vitality of the cassette mm-hmm. tape because of the, mm-hmm. you know, audio quality, the fact that it's kind of just taking up space and people aren't really using, uh, using it. 
Mm-hmm. What do you say to those haters that say, and you kind of go into it in the in the book in that same mm-hmm. chapter, but what, what do you say to those haters? Mm-hmm. Why are they wrong? Why is the cassette tape really valuable still? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, the, the, there's sort of the basic pragmatic aspect of the fact that if you're in a band right now and you want to sell physical media, records are not the way to go i mean records i still love out vinyl and and if you've got a label supporting you totally great to do that but if you're just on your own they're so expensive they're taking so much more time now i mean you can get a cassette turned around from national audio in like less than a week um so just the practical nature of it if you're a band that wants to sell physical copies of your music to people cassettes still got a lot of value that way i also think you know sure they're not as as good quality uh, audio wise but I'm not an audiophile, and I think most people who are into, especially independently made music, are not super big audiophiles. Like, you know, that doesn't mean they can't tell the difference sometimes when something sounds good or doesn't, and I respect that. But I, I don't think the cassettes is so bad that it just should be trashed. All of its other good qualities should just be thrown away just because it doesn't sound quite as good as a compact disc. Or and plus those people, what are the, their alternative is probably streaming where the quality sucks. Right. <laughs> Unless yeah. he is oh, Tidal, totally. which is pretty damn <laughs> totally. good. I will. I will give a shout yeah, out to totally. Title for the quality of audio. Yeah. yeah, and I think. I mean, I I, I have friends. I'm I, again. I'm not an audiophile, so I don't know this too well. But I have friends who are cassette audiophile types who get the best yeah. decks, who get the use the best kind of, and and they swear that when you do all that, it sounds, it sounds really as good, good yes, as anything it does. else. Yeah, definitely. You know? Yeah. So so. I wanted to touch <laughs> on chapter five, the tape hunters, which really focuses mm-hmm. on the boom of cassettes in. Eastern cultures and Africa. And mm-hmm. what I really mm-hmm. took away from that is I think it's, you could make an argument that the cassette really had a even greater impact in Eastern cultures in Africa than it did in the West, mm-hmm. uh, which I would have, yep. you know, uh, you know, was totally, I was <laughs> totally ignorant to that, but it was really cool to mm-hmm. learn about. Uh, were you surprised yeah. by the fact that it had, you know, maybe even more of an impact there when compared to the West and kind of based on your research, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's definitely surprising. I mean, I was relatively familiar through through the channels that most people like me are familiar with with reissue labels and people who are out there finding these tapes that there were that there was a pretty prevalent cassette scene in, in many of these countries. But I didn't know how deep it went, and I also didn't know. So if you if you think about the main reason the cassette had an impact in the West is because it was cheaper to record your own music, it was cheaper for labels to put it out, it was e- easier to get it around. That all was true in the in the other non-Western countries, plus the layer of the fact that they have often in those countries are much more control in terms of both radio and the state in terms of saying this music can't come out. There are also less big labels there. And so, you know, sometimes the government would even say this local regional music is bad for the people. We don't want it to be coming out. And so you couldn't get a record plant to press it, but you could get a dubbing deck and make copies of it and sell them in a kiosk on the street. They weren't going to arrest you for that. So, so the, the cassettes have had an even more like meaningful and stronger purpose than they did here because they were really going around channels that were really much more highly enforced than just like the major label system here in America. So that was one of the big, the big things that was surprising to me and also really interesting. I mean, it, it meant that a lot of this music that people were recording to get around those channels wasn't getting recorded recorded or released otherwise so there's this whole time period where these regional musics that have influenced other music outside of those countries only existed on cassette and still only does so these guys that i talk about who go to these countries to try to find them they're really like they're archivists as much as they are 
great uh, crate diggers, you know, they're, they're rescuing music that otherwise is just going to disappear. Yeah, there were so many great stories in the book, uh, just fate-like <laughs> mm-hmm. stories of someone. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked the one, and I don't think it was necessarily uh, in uh, an Eastern culture, but of the guy that mm-hmm. was at uh, somewhere and there was this huge pile of cassettes that were going to be thrown out and he picked out one uh-huh. and then it was you know the woman <laughs> playing synthesizers over her voice and he loved uh-huh. it and he finally tracked her down uh-huh. and she's like that's one of eight copies it would be completely lost to the world <laughs> without this yep. one moment this one just like fate-like mm-hmm. moment and it's oh, crazy yeah. to think of how much music <laughs> is out there that it's probably very good that hasn't been heard. And that, that was like a huge oh, takeaway for me from this book and just how crazy mm-hmm. that was. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so true in all these Eastern countries just yeah. as well. I mean, like Omar Soliman and Halu Mirgia and some of the guys who are getting a, a foothold over here is only because the people from Awesome Tapes from Africa and Sublime Frequencies yeah. and Sahel Sounds and stuff have gone over there and dug around and found stuff that's interesting and, you know, track these people down. And it's really, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I feel fortunate that it worked out that way in the chapter that it, that I was able to tell those stories this way because I, there are books. There's a whole book about cassette culture in India. There's a whole one about cassette culture in Egypt. And every one of these countries could have a whole book written about it, but you have to kind of go there, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I wasn't obviously I wasn't able to go anywhere but where I live. So, so I, the, the idea of telling the story through people who do do this trekking, I think I was I feel a little lucky that that worked out because their stories are interesting above and beyond what they're finding yeah, too. Yeah, and it's cool because you kind of give a, and now I'm like kind of really interested to learn more about it. But you you kind of giving people a taste of it through you know a book mm-hmm. that may have broader appeal to you know someone mm-hmm. in the west that likes cassettes collects cassettes is mm-hmm. you know a fan of live tape trading culture and things like that and then they you know right. come to chapter five and they learn something completely new mm-hmm. that they didn't know anything about mm-hmm. uh cassette yeah. boom in eastern yeah. cultures in africa and you know i'm, mm-hmm. I'm interested to learn more now so that I feel like you kind yeah. of anyone that reads this book here, you know, seems like they really learned something new about that, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I and I love how the if it, it all kind of fits together in terms of the cassette. Like, not only was it the facilitator, but the way you listen to a cassette, the you know the way you you hit play and you listen to the whole thing. Usually, you don't forward around that much, but and especially when you've never heard before, and the way it has a little bit of a murky audio quality. It's just like this is mysterious music that people are discovering. They don't know where the people are. You're listening to it on this format that adds to the mystery, and it just it's a kind of a ma- whole thing has this sort of magical experience. Like, I don't think it'd be quite the same if we were all finding CDRs of these people it'd still be cool but the cassette adds to that whole aura the cool know? thing i thought it, and it was so true when i read there was a, a line in the book about the cdr it's like you just see like sony or whatever on the cdr and <laughs> yeah. you're like oh yeah you know there's not the same like kind of cool way you can decorate it even though you can't like draw on them and stuff yeah. it's it's uh-huh. absolutely not yeah. the same and it's it's a really mm-hmm. a really good point but why do you think the cassette has had this lasting vitality. Of course, it's kind of ebbed and flowed in mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not millions of cassettes being sold a year, but it's still a relevant mm-hmm. medium. Uh, and there's, mm-hmm. it may always be, you know, if it's lasted this long, mm-hmm. it seems like folks are still interested in it. 
artists are still interested mm -hmm. in recording to tape because of the, the sound. Uh, why do you think the cassette medium is still relevant and is able to, to, to persevere? Mm -hmm. Well, there's always the, the, the sort of the instant answer is always cheapness and, and ease of use and quickness. I mean, that's that seems like it's always going to be a factor. I mean, I guess you could say CDRs are that way, too. But but tapes, uh, they've always sort of symbolized that they kind of were embedded in them from the beginning is that it's giving you this thing, convenience and, and access that people didn't have before in terms of like needing money to go into studio and needing or needing money to press a record or things like that. So that's kind of the basic thing that I feel like it's always going to have some, even if that isn't always completely the case, like you can make your music on a laptop and send it on the internet, that's faster and easier and cheaper. But cassettes still have that, or that kind of signifi signifier of that keeps them sort of in circulation, I think, just for that reason. But I also think that the kind of the interesting thing is the fact that they kind of went away for a while or, or dipped down for a long time, and then eventually streaming became sort of the norm, actually kind yeah. of helped them weirdly to come back because I think a lot of these, uh, especially younger people who are running cassette labels, are like doing it not only because it's it's convenient and fun and easy, but it's like, it's a statement. It's saying, look, look we're, we're rejecting this idea that we should all just be listening to algorithms and just listening to things on our phones and just, you know, and music is just a stream to dip into rather than this thing to commit your personality to somewhat or your, you know, make a collection of things and things like that. I, I do really do think that some, some of these artists, labels that I like would probably do just as well if they just put stuff out digitally, but they're really trying to make a statement about how this is something that we're going to really put ourselves into and participate in and not just be passive about it the way that computers can kind of encourage passive listening, you know? Yeah. It's great to see that it is continues to be relevant. You mm -hmm. dedicated the book to Eric Didel, a friend of yours. He's a manager mm -hmm. of your college radio station at William and Mary. And, you know, he sadly passed away at, uh, I think he was 22 in, mm -hmm. in 1990. Yeah. Uh, you know, we all have people in our mm -hmm. lives who introduce us to new music and our kind of kindred spirits and, you know, loving mm -hmm. music. What what he mean to you and what do you want folks to, to know about him? Yeah, I mean, he's just a great guy. He, you know, he's one of those guys that I met at the college radio station, and we just bonded over music right away. And I, and uh, he knew stuff that I knew, didn't know. I knew stuff that he didn't know. So we were able to trade all those things. And especially he had somehow in high school at that, which at that time wasn't easy to do, had hipped himself to SST records, oh, wow. which I knew nothing about before I got to college. And he had a bunch of those records already. Like he had Me Puppets albums, he had Who's Do albums, he had Minutemen records. And I just like that was ended up being my favorite label in college. So it, I always think of him as introducing me to all that you know um and so that you know that was important we traded tapes here and there i mean i, I tried to put everybody i remember from college and high school i traded tapes with in the acknowledgements because they all contributed to this book in that way but he specifically just because i bonded with him a little closer and also just you know i always think about you know what would we be doing now in terms of trading music what 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 stuff would he be liking that i'm into now and i, I always kind of keep that in the back of my mind which means obviously he had a pretty big influence on me in terms of, and i have luckily i was bequeathed some of his records which he used to put his initials on up in the corner so i have his zen arcade with oh, his initials amazing. up in the corner and double nickels and stuff yeah so it's really nice to still have that bond that, him, it's you know. so funny because <laughs> I, I went to college in the mid to uh, late 2000s and 
I discovered mm-hmm. SST Records in college through my college radio station. And that was oh, also cool. my favorite label in college. <laughs> I did a lot that's of awesome. digging uh-huh. into their back catalog. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, obviously oh, got great. into the Minutemen really hard in college and Husker mm-hmm. Du. I remember mm-hmm. when I first heard Zen Arcade. Uh, in my dorm room on the mm-hmm. computer and then i got the record and, stuff, <laughs> yeah. but, and i was like oh, this uh-huh. is fucking amazing awesome. and then you know kind of mm-hmm. uh i even love like das damen uh, i'm friends with uh, lyle mm-hmm. who's the drummer of that band and they're oh, th- they're actually playing shows yeah. again which i thought is mm-hmm. so cool <laughs> um oh, that's and great. <laughs> uh leaving trains too yeah. i know they put out some stuff on sst mm-hmm. so yeah, oh, it's, yeah it's funny that that's also my yeah. A label that I really got into in college. That's in great. A different time period. <laughs> That's great. I mean, there's so much stuff to discover, especially from. Have you read that SSD book? It's really quite, yeah, quite it's well great. Done. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I only I, I noticed. I think you're only reading music books now and i only do that too because <laughs> yeah, i'm yeah. like there's so much oh, stuff to great. read i'm like but i want to focus <laughs> yeah. on you know music totally. like this is what i'm into yeah. i'm just gonna read music mm-hmm. books here on out for the rest of my yeah. life so <laughs> <laughs> yeah and right now is the really good time for that there's so much good yeah, music books I've, coming out i've, I've got thurston moore's so. book on deck it's over there i'm looking oh, yeah. at it so great yeah book. i'm looking oh, forward great, to reading man. it excellent um <laughs> cool. but yeah and the last question before we transition to the second part, there's a cool mm-hmm. cassette companion piece that comes along with mm-hmm. High Bias, mm-hmm. a book, which everyone you can get, highbiasbook.bandcamp.com. And it features uh, artists that are, you know, have releases on current tape labels. I think you mentioned all right. of them in the book, like, Hasu Mountain, mm-hmm. Null Zone, mm-hmm. a couple of others as well. How'd you go about curating uh, that uh, cassette for this book? Yeah, I mean, it, when I was first starting to write it, every, every so often someone would say to me, oh, you're going to make a cassette with it, right? <laughs> and a lot of times people meant, meant, would that be like a book on tape, which... Uh, you know, a book on tape would be like seven tapes. So (laughs) that wasn't really an (laughs) option. Um, And at first I was, you know, obviously in my dream world, it would have been like a sampling of all the different music in the book, but the rights issues for that kind of thing would be out of control. (laughs) But I still wanted to do something. And I, you know, I've luckily been able to develop a lot of relationships with these current labels by writing about them and buying their stuff and everything. So it it occurred to me, you know, these guys kind of know the, the deal in terms of cassettes right now and how, how to get it done and how to, and how to distribute and things like that. And so I leaned on, especially the house of mountain guys really helped me. So I just came up with this idea. I'm going to pick 12 of the labels I talked about, ask them each for a track from their catalog. Could be something new, something old, something has been released, something not. And I really didn't even curate that a part of it beyond that. I just trusted that the, yeah. I like the music on these labels. So whatever they give me is going to work. And then even when it came to ordering it, I just ordered it alphabetically by label. I was like, I'm not going to try to make this, a, you know, like a scene document or like a, a display of certain style of music. I just want it to be all over the place, which I think it is pretty well all over the place. And, and uh, yeah, and then House of Mountain Guys helped me lay it out and, and get it pressed at National Audio, a, a company that I talked yeah. about in that last chapter. And, you know, and, it, and it's worked out really, it's been really fun because I think I think I, I offer it for just a little bit more than the book on Bandcamp if you want to get both. And I think a lot of people have got it who probably don't have decks or might, might not even ever listen to it, but just doing it sort of out of like, this is a cool little thing that goes along with the book. And, and yeah, it's just been, it's been a really fun little add on to, I think it's incentivized people a little bit more to try to want to get, you know, into the book and stuff. So. Cool. Very cool concept. Yeah. 
I like <laughs> that there's a tape to go along with this great book. Yeah, I have to say that would almost the most exciting day the day i got the book was the most exciting but pretty close was the day i got the first box of tapes <laughs> it was pretty awesome, awesome too. <laughs> everyone again highbiasbook.bandcamp.com or wherever you get books and stuff all right now we're gonna play some songs that are featured on the high bias cassette we're gonna hear do not disturb by cop funeral Daydreaming by White Poppy and Finn McCool by Moth Cock. Thank you. 
All right, everyone, we just heard three songs from the High Bias cassette. Again, we heard Do Not Disturb by Cop Funeral, Daydreaming by White Poppy, and Finn McCool by Moth Cock. And you can get the cassette and the book at highbiasbook.bandcamp.com. All right, now Mark picked some records and songs, and we're going to talk about them and play them. Starting off with Silver Jews, of course, uh, the late David Berman, great songwriter. Uh, Virginia Connection as well, because he attended University of mm -hmm. Virginia with Stephen Malkmus. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. you picked Albemarle Station off of the Natural Bridge. Yeah, great. I mean, always been a big fan of all their stuff. I kind of was aware of them. They were all at UV University of Virginia while I was at William & Mary, and I kind of oh, ultimately yeah, yeah. knew people who knew them and everything. In fact, I had gotten into both those colleges, and I was really down to the wire deciding which one to go to. I ended up at William & Mary. I, I always feel like I have this parallel life <laughs> that I could have been part of that whole scene. I mean, I wasn't a musician per se, but I at least would have known those guys. They all had uh, radio shows, too, at WTJU, the station there. So I've always felt this sort of affinity to those guys. And I wrote about pavement pretty early on for some magazines and stuff. And I got to know Bob a little bit and stuff. So, you know, <laughs> that's part of it. And also just like, I mean, he's just the most brilliant. He's one of those guys, whenever I listen to him, suddenly I'm like, okay, there's nothing this is it. This is the best lyric writing yeah. in the history of the world. And, you know, and I, and I, there's times when I think that of other things, but it, always when I go back to him, I think of that. And this is one that just, I mean, I, I could pick so many songs by them, but this, this one, this has the, the sort of relatively famous line about pa passing an abandoned drive-in with Ivy growing over the screen. It's like I caught Hollywood sleeping. <laughs> it's just like such an amazing, and it comes right in the middle of the song when all the music has dropped out and, and he's just him and acoustic guitar singing that. And there's something so dramatic about that moment for me that I, I'm just addicted to just going back to that part of the song over and over. Passing abandoned, driving with Ivy growing over the screen. It's like I caught Hollywood sleeping, sleep without the dream. Magic shop in Colonial. Next, uh, Deep Fascination by the Feelies off of Only Life, a band we both have strong affinity for. I know I'm a, a massive mm -hmm. fan. And I have this record. I think I also have like a cassette single of this song that oh, nice. I. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the label Bar None Records, but Glenn Morrow is a sure, good friend of yeah. mine. And um, one time oh, I was nice. there and, you know, he took me in the back closet. He's like, you can have whatever you want. And there was all this like stuff in there. And I'm like, oh, look at this cool Feelies mm -hmm. cassette single of, I think, Deep Fascination oh, or something from the Only Life record. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so a little uh -huh. cassette connection there. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I don't think I think I have all their stuff on vinyl. I don't think I've ever I've ever gotten a Feelys cassette, but but um yeah, they I mean they're a band I always liked. I, I found out about them in college, and and when I was in college, Only Life was sort of the album that came out while yeah. I was at the radio station. Um, because I think I graduated before the next one came out, Time for a Witness. So this was the one I saw them tour on a lot, and like I saw them open for Lou Reed. Lou Reed, yeah, that's their the, big yeah. Lou Reed tour was when this yeah. record came out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. 
And I think I saw them headline a few times with Yoa Tango opening, and it's just very, very formative to to get into them at that time. And uh, and so this this particular album just always had, even though they're one of those weird bands where I think every one of their albums is awesome, and I can't really choose a hierarchy. But this one just has a, a specialness for me because it was kind of the, what was happening when I was getting into them. And, and Deep Fascination, I just love the uh that they sing a little bit and then they just and it's just instrumental from then on and it could just go on and on and on and and live they would take it longer than the record sometimes yeah, this, I, I think they were really cool with that. this is a great <laughs> song to to see live the like you know they're, they're mm-hmm. known for their like twin guitar interplay and you know uh-huh. glenn uh-huh. and bill i feel like really you know go mm-hmm. off on on this one in the live oh, yeah. setting but it's yeah. great that the feelies are yeah. still kicking. They play shows every year yeah. like clockwork, basically. They they, they mm-hmm. annually play yeah. shows. They have shows coming up in April. And, you know, I'll be at the New York nice. one for sure. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I have to admit that's one of the one of the biggest things I miss about living on the East Coast is you could kind of rely on seeing them. They usually yes, came to D.C. Yeah. where I used to live pretty much every year. And, and they don't seem to venture much beyond, they go to the South some, but I don't think they've come West in like probably yeah, 20, no, 30 years, while, you know, which, which is understandable. They're all, they're all getting up there in age. So. Speaking of DC, next, Unrest, Perfect Teeth, the song So, So Sick. You're a DC native, I know. Um, and this record came out in the early 90s, but, you know, really, I feel like right. representative of that teen beat uh, record scene and mm-hmm. all that kind of poppier sounding music uh, that was coming out of DC mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, growing up in the Virginia, D.C. area and staying around there for most of college and after college, I, uh, there was all sorts of, you know, there was Discord, there were Simple Machines, there was um, Slumberland, there was all sorts of stuff happening, VHF, all sorts of cool things. But Team Beat was the one I gravitated toward right away because of Unrest. And then also because once I got into Unrest, I mean, Mar- Mark Robinson and all the people around that label were very approachable. I ended up, my brother ended up interning for them for a little bit while they were in Arlington and and so I just, I felt, I feel like a big connection to those guys and especially Unrest, just a great band. And this one specifically, I was in grad school uh, for television and film production and uh, on a Thanksgiving break when this, uh, I think the record was about to come out or had come out. I checked out a camera from, I was in Syracuse. I checked out a camera, flew home and I said to Mark, do you want to try to make a video? I've got this camera. We can, it, you know, no money. It won't cost us anything. So he said, yeah, let's, let's do it at the team beat house. And we went down in the basement, but then he said, instead of me being in it, I want your brother to sing the song. <laughs> so uh, there's this, <laughs> so we shot this video of my brother standing, uh, changing costumes and all different stuff around him singing the song. And just for a brief moment, you can see Mark directing him in the video, but that ended up being the, 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 the video for so, so sick. So I kind of produced slash helped him direct that video. So that's why it has a, that's amazing. Very cool. Factoid <laughs> <Yeah>. there. Thank <laughs> you for sharing yeah. that. That's cool. <laughs> Thank you. 
Next up, Times New Viking, uh, a band that uh, I love. Uh, you know, I'm sad that they're not around anymore, but during their, I guess, 10-year run-ish, put out a lot of great lo-fi records. They were really like Luddites in their adherence to, you know, the four-track, eight-track, whatever they used for all their records. Right. Uh, and you picked Fuck Her Tears from Dancer Equired. Uh, which they put out on Merge mm-hmm. in 2011. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another band kind of like Silver Juice where I could have picked anything. I mean, like all their records are great and all their songs are really good. This one just has this this uh, chord, you know, uh, chord progression right at the beginning that's just so catchy and so uh, addictive. And then it also has that crazy energy that they have where it sounds like they were trying to like outrun each other <laughs> during the song, you know? And um also, like I have a real like soft spot for that time period when there were when the kind of lo-fi thing yeah. was coming back a little bit and like psychedelic horse shit, I guess. And some of the uh, bands out in San Francisco, like the Mantles and um, uh, Fresh and Onlys and those kind of bands. And I, I kind of associate them with that a little bit, but they, I also feel like their stuff transcended a lot of that too. Like there's nothing really that sounds like Time Zoo Viking in terms of how they were able to manipulate this noise. Yeah and still have melodies oh, yeah. underneath it that you could hear and feel, you know, it's really, a, it's not an easy that thing to do. That was the best part. I felt like they were really underrated mm. songwriters. I felt like, I felt like people either oh, loved yeah. them or really understood them mm-hmm. like me and you. I remember mm-hmm. I went to mm-hmm. see them at Maxwell's that summer that that record came out, summer 2011. Oh, nice. And there were definitely not a lot of mm-hmm. people there. I was maybe one of a handful of people. And I brought a friend with me who didn't know the band and I went to the bathroom mm-hmm. and then I came back and he was gone. And then I got a text from him and he's like, <laughs> dude, I couldn't stay. Sorry. Like I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. That's so funny. And I'm like, well, I think this is like the best band out there. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I was a huge, yeah, huge yeah. fan. Uh, I thought they're really underrated uh-huh. songwriters. I guess you had to really just get what they were doing to, to really yep. like them. Um, Oh, totally. And, and you know, they, they, the trajectory they had, almost every band like them that I got into eventually made kind of their studio yeah. record where they cleaned it all up. And you're like, oh, wow, these songs. I love the fact they yeah. never did that. They never abandoned that. You know, there's some songs are a little easier to hear than others, but they never just said, we're just going to show you just the melodies and not the grit and grind. This so, record yeah. was kind of their <laughs> sort of doing that, but not. they didn't go like full right. on, you know, it was kind of like, we'll no, meet you, no, we'll, yeah. we'll give it. And I remember reading an interview where <laughs> right. they were like, we're kind of like, this is going to be our last shot. Let's kind of try uh-huh. it. And this is kind uh-huh. of, you know, it sure. still had that like uh-huh. nice feel to that mucky feel to it, but was cleaned up yep. a little bit. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. For, on, on their skill, this is their major label <laughs> yeah. record, but it's still <laughs> compared to most bands. It's not. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Totally. Totally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Next up, Omni, Afterlife off of their record, Deluxe, one of the great, I think, current, you know, post-punk band. A lot of good bands. I think Mm -hmm. they're from Chicago, coming out of Chicago right now, doing like Mm post-punk. Yeah, that's just cool band. I mean, I guess some of the, uh, one of the dudes was in um, Deer Hunter at one point. Oh, interesting. I didn't know um, that. Yeah, and, and they're kind of. 
So you can sort of hear that once you know, but I don't think that they sound like Deer Hunter per se. But uh, yeah, this is their first record, the first single off of it, and it just hooked me right away. I just love that kind of, uh, yeah, the post-punky kind of uh, sparse kind of minimalist version, you know, just just clipped guitars and clipped bass and, and uh, staccato drums and kind of somewhat... Not blasé, but sort of like a little bit robotic vocals, and there's all that's always been a formula for me that I can get into, you know, because it, it feels like both danceable, but also sort yeah. of weirdly mechanistic, like a devoish kind of that way, and and yeah, I just think they're they're a really great band, and they've been evolving too. They they sound different than this now, but they still have that core of like that kind of uh, really intensely rhythmic kind of music. I really like them. Blood dries darker off of at Echo mm-hmm. Lake. Folkier stuff here. Yeah, great band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're they're a band that I came to a little late. I, I had heard about them here and there, read about read reviews, but I just hadn't found the time for them. And then this record came out, and for some reason, it was the one that was like, okay, this is when I'm going to start listening to them. And I think this is the first song on the record, and it's just it's such a great song. It's a, so melodic and has kind of twists and turns. And and I I tend to like his voice. He's got that kind of Neil Youngish kind of higher pitched voice i know some people don't like them because of that i think possibly but i i think it's i think it works with the music really well it's perfect and i i love how they're they're kind of a deceptively hooky band like they seem kind of jammy a little bit but their songs are full of oh hooks. yeah yeah because yeah. if it was <laughs> yeah. jammy i would not dig mm-hmm. it <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and we yeah. dig it so uh-huh. That's cool. Yeah, they're a great great band and they've they've been evolving too. And I'm really I, I really admire the fact that they sort of keep going at it. You know, they, they had a little bit of buzz here and there at times, but I don't think that's what they're in it for. Oh, yeah. You know, they're they're in it for making good music. Last song, Flowers by Galaxy 500 off of Today. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of those weird things where I'm a huge fan of the band. I love every record, but somehow the first song on the first record is still my favorite song of theirs. Partially just because when I heard it, I just, you know, as an introduction, I just could, you know, I had never heard a band like them, although they obviously have some clear influences. But, and part of it was Kramer's production, I guess, too. There's just something about that sound, the way the guitar sounds on here, and the and Damon's kind of weirdly jazzy drumming. It almost doesn't sound like rock drumming the way he plays, and, and Naomi has that really melodic bass, and it's just such a cool combination. It just brings me back every time I hear. Like, I have the copy that was out on whatever the original label, Aurora copy, and it just, I mean, I'll go back there right away. And then I, I was lucky enough to, to be know about them in the small time period that they existed so i did get to see them oh that's amazing (laughs) and i saw them yeah so that was really cool and yeah just uh that one of those bands that you just never gets old
right, Mark. Mark Masters, the author of the new book, High Bias Music. Uh, High Bias, I was reading (laughs) the cassette cover. (laughs) No problem. High Bias, The Distorted (laughs) History of the Cassette Tape. Um, Awesome book, everyone. I read it. I really enjoyed it, as I've mentioned throughout our interview. I really learned a lot, so I'm glad you wrote it. Glad it's out there. I highly recommend everyone check it out at highbiasbook.bandcamp.com you can also get the accompanying cassette which features awesome uh songs from bands like mothcock omni gardens giant claw cop funeral which is uh i saw there was a video on a site with an interview that you did where you mentioned i think the record that that song is on as a Mm -hmm. recent cassette release that you like um Bef- yeah, he's great. Yeah, before we wrap up, what's what's next for you now that the book is out? Uh, do you want to write another book? Uh, what's what's going on with with you? Yeah, I, do, I, I definitely would love to write another book sometime. I don't have anything specific. Everybody keeps telling me to write the book about CDs next, but I don't think that's <laughs> no, really no. <laughs> what I'm what I'm going to do. I think that could be interesting, but that I'm not I'm not as into CDs, so I'm, I probably won't write that book, even though I do like CDs. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to continue writing for the few places that are you know the dwindling places like Pitchfork and Bandcamp that are still hanging on for now. And um, yeah, I would love to write another book at some point. We'll see. And I'm also really going to dedicate as much time in the next few years to trying to get a, a new version of no wave out there that people can buy for reasonable prices. Oh, so that's, hopefully that'll that's happen great. I would love that. Yeah. You know, I would love to read that mm-hmm. book. I'm a big, uh, you know, really mm-hmm. into the history of music, especially in New York. Mm-hmm. Cause that's, that's where I'm from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would, I would be mm-hmm. the target market for a reissue of that book. I, I look forward <laughs> to cool. reading it in the next few years. Yeah, hopefully that'll be that'll happen pretty soon. So. All right, Mark, thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. It's been cool to connect from back when I wrote about you for the Wire. Oh yeah, that <laughs> was cool. Uh, Mackenzie tape's going to be up and running again this year, uh, everyone. So stay tuned. In the meantime, we're going to play one more song to end today's episode. It appears on the High Bias cassette. It's called. Olong by Omni Gardens. (laughs) 